It's great to be with you this morning, New Hope. Over the past several week, uh, past several weeks, Mark's uh, talked out of Ephesians six, and um, he's been talking in a, in a general area of spiritual warfare, putting on an armor and uh, and recognizing that there is this great cosmic battle that is occurring between God and Satan, and that we're engaged in that in that battle on God's side, and and that the weapons in that battle are ideas, and that um, the prize is the hearts and the minds of every human being on this planet. That's what uh, the conflict is over. One of those big ideas that, uh, that uh, is in- involved in that conflict is how the universe began. And so we're going to be talking about that this morning. Uh, the ideas that are out there, both true and false, about how the universe began, and, and it's going to feel a little bit at some point like a science lesson, uh, but the, the goal is that you will walk away, number one, with your faith strengthened that, that uh, God as an explanation for the beginning of the universe is the best possible explanation, not only from a faith perspective, but from a scientific perspective as well. It, it can compete with any theory out there in the universe, success, uh, out there in the, in the marketplace of ideas successfully and that also you would come away with some simple discussion points that you could engage those in your world with. God sends us people in our world. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ with a message of reconciliation. And you can engage with people on, not just on faith grounds, uh, which is important, not just on the basis of what Scripture says, which is important, uh, but uh, on the basis of what science says about the beginning of the universe and what that tells us about who or what created it. So uh, those two things I I hope that uh, you'll walk away with this morning. Uh, First of all, I I want you to meet someone, and his name is uh, Archie. At least that's what I call him. Cute little guy. And uh, his his real name is uh, Archisebus Achilles. Archisebus Achilles. And uh, actually, uh, the fossil of Archisebus Achilles was just found not long ago in a lake bed in China. Now, uh, there's the fossil remains on the lake bed as they were actually uh, discovered, and scientists uh, tell us uh, they, uh, they indicate that they think this fossil is 55 million years old. Uh, one of the first things I'd like you to, to notice is the, um, I think we'd all agree that there's been a fair amount of artistic license taken be- between the picture of that fossil and the picture of Archie, uh, there's a, a lot of artistic license that's been taken. That artist has a particular point of view in the way he's portrayed that fossil evidence. Let me read what the, uh, this article says uh, about Archie and, um, and about us in the process. This is an article out of the Lansing State Journal, although it was reprinted all over the world through the Associated Press, it says this. New, and, and what I want you to listen for is the assertions that are presented as truth. The assertions in this article that are presented as fact. It says, New fossil evidence of the earliest complete skeleton of an ancient primate suggests it was a hyperactive, wide-eyed creature. Actually, we have quite a few of those downstairs right now. <laughs> a hyperactive, wide-eyed creature so small you could hold a couple of them in your hand if only they would stay still long enough. Same problem the folks are having downstairs. This 55-million-year-old fossil dug up in a lake bed in central China is one of our first primate relatives. Really? So if you notice some resemblance? No, not really. And it gives scientists a better understanding of the complex evolution that eventually led to us. Listen for the truth that's being communicated there offers the best clue yet of what our earliest direct relatives would have been like at that time, according to a study in the journal Nature. Uh, The uh, curator says, uh, Chris Beard, the curator at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, says it's a close cousin, in fact. It is the closest thing we have to an ancestor of humans so long ago. First of all, I, I want you to notice the creative license of the artist in the way that that creature was depicted. And, and secondly, the assertions in the article that are intended to, to be accepted as fact. 
They're intended to be accepted as reality, as truth, and in fact will be accepted as truth by many people who read that article. Closer to home, Michigan high school biology standards. I pulled this out of, uh, uh, off the web, Michigan Department of Education. High school biology standards says this. Listen again for the assertions in here and the authority that's presented for this position. It is widely accepted that Earth's present-day life forms have evolved from common ancestors by processes that include natural selection. We'll talk more about that in a minute. In the scientific community, evolution has, be, has been a unifying principle that provides a framework for organizing most of biological knowledge into a coherent picture. It has been accepted by the scientific community. In other words, if you don't accept this, you're a, a day late and a dollar short. Uh, you may be a couple sandwiches short of a picnic basket if you don't accept this. It has been accepted by the scientific community that evidence for evolution is found in the fossil record and is indicated by anatomical and chemical similarities evident within the diversity of existing organisms. In other words, uh, the organism that we just looked at had two arms and two legs and eyes that face forward. That means he's related to you. That's, that's, what they're, that's the leap that they're asking you to take. This is what's being taught to our children in, in the public high schools in, in Michigan. Notice that science is presented as the authority here, and that if you don't agree with science, then uh, you must not uh, be very intelligent or very well-informed, and that these assertions are presented as, not as theories, not as alternative hypotheses. They're presented as accomplished fact, not to be questioned. Well, what they allude to is the, is the premise of Darwinian evolution. That is, that, uh, that everything that has occurred in, in our universe has occurred by random chance and, and natural selection. And that began with Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species, the publication in 1859. And you see uh, Darwin's picture, his likeness up there. Actually, the, the, uh, the subtitle, the complete title of that that uh, book is The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. There's actually a chapter in that book that, uh, that, that talks about how uh, one race is genetically superior to another and some implications as to, as to what should be done. Well, they, they, uh, <clears throat> in Nazi Germany, they actually used that as part of their playbook and they, they ran with that. They said, we, we don't want to wait for natural selection uh, we think we already know what the superior race is, and so we're going to eliminate some of the inferior races. And so they eliminated six million Jews and four million other people that they considered were genetically inferior to them. And, and that's the logical extension of what we're talking about here in, in this theory. Darwin was a, a naturalist, and what he did was observe, if you didn't know, he observed changes in the beak size of finches, birds, finches on the Galapagos Island, uh, among other things. And what he noticed was that the beak size changed uh, of those finches as they adapted to various food sources, different sized seeds and uh, different food sources that were available. He noticed that the, the beaks changed size over time, and he extrapolated a theory from that that all life forms, in fact, evolved from a, a single fell, a cell over billions of years, through the natural selection of random cell mutations that promoted the, the survival and the differentiation of species. In other words, that uh, all, all species evolved from originally from a single life form. He didn't explain where that single living cell came from or how non-life uh, generated life, uh, but that was the theory. In, in other words, uh, uh, at some point amphibians became lizards, at some point uh, raccoons uh, changed into horses and chimpanzees changed over billions of years into you and I. And human beings are merely a highly evolved form of animal from the primate species. In other words, Archie would have been our ancestor according to this theory. But the reality is that it's, it's bad science and that there is no fossil record that shows cross-species evolution, that is the, the transitional forms. Uh, well, uh, an amphibian changing into a mammal, for example. Of the millions of fossils that have been found, there isn't a single one that, uh, that shows that. 
And bio, uh, biologist Jonathan Wells uh, notes this uh, about the theory. He says, according to paleoanthropologist Missia Landau, how do you like that on your business card? Paleoanthropologist Missia Landau, theories of human origins far exceed what can be inferred from the study of fossils alone. And in fact, place a heavy burden of interpretation on the fossil record, a burden which is relieved by placing fossils into pre-existing narrative structure. Is that an academic word for a lie? <laughs> In 1996, American Museum of Natural History curator Ian Tattersall acknowledged that in paleoanthropology, the patterns we perceive are as likely to result from our unconscious mindsets as from the evidence itself. In other words, we're making this stuff up as we go along. I used to be a criminal investigator, and one of the dangers we had to guard against was settling on a theory of the crime too early. If you settle on a theory of the crime too early, you'll accumulate evidence that fits your theory. And instead, what we need to do is follow the evidence and, until the logical theory of the crime emerges. That's how, that's how you investigate the, the whodunit. And uh, that's what, exactly what they've done here. Uh, they settled on a theory, they have an agenda, and they're looking for uh, evidence to support that. Darwin's own admission undercuts his work. He said at the end of his life, not one change of species into another is on record. We cannot prove that a single species has been changed. You see, from a, uh, from a scientific perspective, the concept of cross-species evolution is bankrupt. There is no scientific evidence to support it. Lizards do not turn into raccoons. Chimpanzees do not turn into people. Well, what is the agenda there? Whenever the facts, uh, whenever the evidence don't support the theory, you always have to ask yourself, what is the real agenda? Well, the real agenda is this, eliminating God from the discussion about the origin of the universe. That is, that is the real agenda here. Under the pretense of scientific objectivity, uh, this theory excludes God from the possibility of being considered as the origin of the universe. And, and uh, it, it uh, equates science with reality and, and uh, anything we find, any truth we find from the Bible as fable and myth. It, it parks the concept of God originating the universe in the category of fable and myth not to be seriously considered. The possibility of God's supernatural activity is, is uh, a myth and a superstition and perhaps a happy story, according to this theory. Here's what God says about that. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Would this theory be an example of by their unrighteousness suppressing the truth about God? I think so. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God says, step out of the door and look around. My handiwork is all around you. There shouldn't be any question about how, this, how all this came into being. But if you exclude God from the discussion, uh, then those who are atheists and materialists uh, have to generate alternative explanations that, number one, don't require God, number two, uh, fit the existing scientific, in quotes, uh, theories about how the world came into existence, and three, uh, fit our limited human understanding of God's capabilities. This is where our culture gets tripped up. We say, well, God couldn't do this or that because we think of God inside the box of our own limitations and, and capabilities, and, and God's well beyond that as we know. Uh, Satan's strategy is to remove God from our collective consciousness as a culture so that God becomes irrelevant as a reference point beginning with creation and then for our daily lives as well. And this, this should not be a surprise to us. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Satan blinds people to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And this is one more delusion in, in his game. And we see that happening in our, in our schools, in our government, in our media. It, uh, we're not only encouraged not to talk about 
uh, God as, as a factor in any of our decision-making or a, as the originator of life, uh, but we're, we're beginning, to be, beginning to be actively discouraged uh, from that. Here's why it matters for eternity. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. You see, if God can exclude Satan, if, God, if Satan can exclude God as a creator from our thinking, then he can keep people from faith in Jesus Christ. If you never consider God as a factor in your life, you'll never get to the place where you'll consider Jesus Christ as, as a solution, as, as a point of salvation. Once people realize that God exists, the next great question in life is, what does he require of us? And, and we learn about his great story of love and redemption. But Satan doesn't want us to get to that place. So he's content to neutralize our culture in this delusion of agnosticism. I don't know if God exists or not, but he's irrelevant to me. And people go through entire lifetimes like that, arrive at the end of their life, stand before God, and they've never considered the possibility of God, and they're lost for eternity. That's Satan's strategy. But God has a story, too, uh, about the beginning of time. And, uh, and I want to, this morning, uh, do something we don't often do. How many of you have, within the past year, read the entire first chapter of Genesis? Genesis 1. How many of you, over the past year, have read that? Okay, there, there are maybe a dozen or so. And that's about the same as in the, in the previous crowds last night and this morning. Uh, what I'm going to suggest we do is I want to I uh, read together God's explanation of how the universe came into being. And uh, if God's word is truth, I, I think this will ring true to you. And then we'll look at how science backs up Scripture, how science backs up the, the, the origin of the universe as, as God lays it out for us here in Genesis 1. This will take us about three and a half minutes but we're going to read through Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the, the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the, first, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the field, of the earth, 
according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is where we come in. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the, the sixth day. One thing that some people have pointed out is that uh, it looked like everybody was eating vegetables after creation, right? Yeah, at least for a time. Some things I'd, I'd like you to see in uh, Genesis 1. First of all, uh, God says that space and time and everything in the material world began at the point of creation. He spoke things into existence. He simply spoke the material universe and all living things into existence at his word. And that should not be a surprise to us. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of those things that are visible. The psalmist picked up the same theme in Psalm 33.9. Uh, speaking of God, God's role in creation, he says, For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You see, uh, God's power transcends the first law of thermodynamics. That is, he creates matter and energy from nothing. He speaks it into existence and it happens. And that's an obstacle for some because they, they try uh, to keep God within the box of what we know about science and, and uh, matter and energy. But uh, that's a key point that God stands outside of time and space and matter and energy and the, the uh, laws of science as we know them, the constants of science as we know them, he transcends those things. He is the one that created those things. And so when we see a miracle, we, we say we see something supernatural. It may be supernatural to God because it's outside the, the physical laws of science. It is natural to God uh, because uh, time began when he said it began. If you thought about it, maybe you thought about it before, but uh, time wasn't always there. Uh, time came into existence as an artifact of creation. When God spoke creation into existence, time was spoken into existence at the same time. Time someday will end. It will be irrelevant to us, just as it is to God now. So God speaks, into it, uh, speaks things into existence uh, out of nothing. He stands outside space and time and transcends those things as well as the laws of science. Francis Collins, a world-renowned geneticist and physician who led the Human Genome Project that, that mapped the structure of our human DNA, uh, said at, at one time he thought science was God. And he measured everything in terms of science. When he came to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, he said he, he suddenly recognized that science was the tool that God has given us to understand and to explore our creation. Men and women, uh, also from Genesis, men and women, you notice, were created as unique beings in the image of God. We didn't evolve from some lower life form. We were created uniquely in God's image so that God could have fellowship. He walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, we're in God's image, meaning that we can reason, that we have uh, morality and language and relationships and creativity and love and commitment and free will and we have an innate desire to connect with God that God-shaped vacuum that the philosopher Pascal uh, talked about 
Adam and Eve were historical figures, according to the Genesis 1 account here. They weren't part of a, a fable. They were historical figures who interacted with God, who, who named animals, and who at some point chose to sin. They exercised their free will and chose to sin. They, they had to be historical figures. Otherwise, none of, none of the rest of the story, God's narrative, would make sense. The, the whole idea of, uh, of creation and fall and redemption from that, they had to be historical figures for that reason. Notice also that God created distinct groups of living things, various kinds of plants and birds and fish and animals. He uniquely designed and created each kind. They didn't all evolve from some lower life form, whether it was uh, plants for animals. They certainly didn't all evolve from a single cell. They were uniquely designed and created by God. Now God built into his creation the capacity for us to adapt and evolve in response to the environment, but not to mutate across species in the, in the way that Darwinian theory would, would uh, tell us it, it occurs. Fish don't turn into dogs. Chimpanzees don't turn into human beings. So how do we speak the truth of Genesis 1 into our culture? Well, first of all, we have to be ready to give an answer. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says, uh, be, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you concerning the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. Under, underline that. Uh, God didn't ask us to argue with people. He asked us to have dialogue with, with people and to speak truth into their lives. It's more than just shouting scripture verses at people. In, in, uh, I was interested to see that in Acts 17, uh, Paul approached the Greeks in Athens uh, on the basis of creation. He said, uh, he, he didn't begin quoting scripture right away, but, but he, said, he said this, uh, look, I, I noticed looking around the marketplace here, there are a lot of gods you've got around here. Let me tell you about the one true God who created heaven and earth and every living thing. That's what he said. That's where he began to engage with them. Uh, and I think it's important that we engage with people where they are. Uh, presenting the gospel, uh, talking to people about God's story, people around us, is, is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. We have, to, uh, we have to tailor it to the, to the moment and to the people that we're dealing with. The good news is that, that God's story is the most convincing hypothesis for the origin of the universe. Some of you know, it, uh, if you uh, know me, you, you know that my first career was as a state trooper. And I spent 26 years as a state trooper. One of the uh, areas of specialized expertise that I had was dealing with barricaded gunmen and hostage takers. And on one particular occasion, back in the 80s, it probably was, I'm going to date myself. Back in the 80s, I, I flew a team up to uh, the UP, up to Escanaba, where uh, a deranged man had unfortunately shot and, and killed uh, an elderly neighbor lady and then holed up in the house and uh, refused to come out, refused to communicate with anybody. So we flew up there and did what we normally do. We set up a perimeter and, and uh, got a briefing and uh, scoped out, you know, did our recon and so on. And then we began to try to communicate with this man. And he wouldn't, uh, we tried a number of different avenues to communicate with him and, and had no success. And so at one point I told a, a trooper out on the perimeter, I said, I, I want you to put a ferret round in in uh, the window that, uh, of the room where we knew he was. Now, a ferret round, I should explain, is a, a little projectile, a rocket-shaped projectile about this big that uh, is fired from a 12-gauge shotgun. It'll, it'll penetrate a plate glass window. It only does one thing, but it does that thing very well, and that is it makes a room completely uninhabitable in about three seconds. And so the trooper fired the ferret round through the window, and uh, the next thing we saw... We had an eyeball on the house, and the next thing we saw was this guy doing the 40-yard dash toward the front door. And uh, one, one of my big guys on the perimeter um, clotheslined him at the front door and took him into custody. The point I want to make about that is that uh, his reality changed in about 10 seconds. You see, in, 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 uh, at one point in time, his reality was that uh, there was no place he would rather be than in that room. And, and five seconds later, there was no place, he, uh, 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 that room was the last place he wanted to be. You see, his reality changed in about five seconds. What I'm going to suggest to you is that, that God 
has equipped and positioned each of you to fire that ferret round of truth into another person's life. He's placed us in networks of relationships. And there is truth you can speak into another person's life. Some of you, uh, that whole trajectory, whole trajectory of your lives has been changed because so- someone has been courageous enough to speak truth into your life and it's, it's changed the whole trajectory of your life for eternity. And God positions us and equips us and empowers us to do the same thing. Uh, one of those folks who benefited from that uh, a ferret round fired into his life was Francis Collins. Dr. Francis Collins, a world-renowned geneticist again, the head of the Human Genome Project that mapped the structure of human DNA. He describes himself at one point in his life as an obnoxious atheist. Uh, he was an antagonistic toward anything that had to do with God. But he was treating an elderly heart patient one day, and, uh, and she said to him, uh, she told him how much her faith meant to her, what a comfort it was uh, that she was a person of faith in dealing with the intense pain that, that she was going through, this ordeal she was going through with a heart condition. And uh, then she asked a question. She fired a ferret round of truth into his life and asked him this question, Doctor, what do you believe? Doctor, what do you believe? He said, I had to admit for the first time in my life I didn't know what to say. And, and, and then... Uh, The Holy Spirit used that in his life uh, to begin his journey and and to open his heart to the truth of the gospel and eventually uh, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And and now he's he's one of the most powerful advocates as as a man of science uh, for the the, uh, creation as the origin of the universe. All it took was a, a ferret round fired into his life. Well, when did space and time begin? Let's talk about the Big Bang. Some of you remember Carl Sagan, the the astronomer, 1980s. Uh, He was famous for his TV miniseries, The Cosmos. And the the statement that he's probably most remembered for, he said, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. In other words, the material universe was all that ever existed, according to Sagan. And that reflected the view of many scientists scientists who embraced Darwinian naturalism, that is, who excluded God from the conversation about science. Carl Sagan said this about materialism. He said, matter exists eternally in time and space. And independent from God, I might add. Matter exists eternally in time and space. That's a a philosophy of of materialism. Psalm 14.1, on the other hand, says, "The, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. Now, uh, this Darwinian uh, approach to life uh, had a profound impact on science and and many in the scientific community abandoned the idea of God. Well, this is a cosmic warfare. God wasn't about to to let that go unchallenged. And so he fired ferret rounds into our collective consciousness uh, that that brought us back uh, to, to thinking about God. The first one was in 1917. Some of you remember... Uh, hearing about Albert Einstein, a, a brilliant man, and his theory of relativity. The general theory of relativity has to do with gravity. And when he did his mathematical calculations, he was shocked uh, because um, they conflicted with everything he knew about science and everything that was accepted at that time in the scientific community. His theory of relativity indicated that the universe was expanding, that the universe was expanding. Now, he, he, was so, um, he was so intimidated by the scientific community of the time and by their understanding of the origin of the universe that he, he actually introduced what he called a fudge factor. He introduced another mathematical constant into that equation to make it appear as if the universe was existing at a steady state and was not uh, expanding. And he later acknowledged that that was the greatest mistake of his life, the greatest lapse of, of scientific integrity in his life. Because shortly after that, in the 1920s, there were a couple other researchers that actually confirmed his calculations. And it it looked as if the universe was expanding. How could that be? Well, God wasn't finished yet. In in, uh, Stephen Meyer, the geophysicist, says this about Einstein's contribution. He says, The field equations of general relativity prove that the universe began at a zero point in both time and space. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1, doesn't it? which coincides with the biblical doctrine of creation out of nothing. But God wasn't finished. He had Edwin Hubble and his telescope. 
if you're familiar with the Hubble telescope that we know about now, it was named after this guy, Edwin Hubble. The, the Bible predicted that God would communicate through his universe. In Psalm 19, 1 through 4, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Well, one night in 1929, God revealed knowledge through his universe. God spoke to Edwin Hubble through his telescope at Mount Wilson Observatory in Pasadena, California. And he identified minute changes in the spectrum of light from distant stars and planets that confirmed that the universe was expanding outward from a single point. Thus the designation Big Bang, that it exploded outward from a single point in space and, and time. And that discovery sent shock waves through the scientific community. Incontrovertible scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning. And, and worst of all for those materialists, it invited the next question, which is what? If the universe has a beginning, what's the next question? How, right? How, how it came into being. What was the cause for that beginning? Well, God wasn't finished yet. Uh, two Bell Lab physicists named Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson in 1965 were physicists at the Bell Telephone Labs in New Jersey. They used a large antenna. And, and what they found uh, was they discovered background radiation noise that they, they couldn't figure out until finally they realized that they had just confirmed Hubble's earlier finding of, of the Big Bang, that the universe had an explosive beginning. And that's what they were picking up in the background radiation noise, that it began at a specific time and place. Uh, Penzias, a, a former agnostic, says this after he won the Nobel Prize in 1978. He says, The best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. If theism and the Judeo-Christian view are true, then we have reason to expect evidence of a finite universe. We now have evidence of a finite universe. Therefore, we, we have a reason to think that theism and the Judeo-Christian view of creation may be true. That from a former agnostic. Here's another former agnostic, Robert uh, Jastrow, an astronomer, on, on the implications of the Big Bang or the, the beginning of the universe for science. He says, this is kind of funny, <clears throat> he says, for the, science, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who's been th who've been sitting there for centuries. Well, what are the implications of the, the fact that the universe had a, had a beginning for our conversations with those who have not yet come to Christ? Well, first of all, it, it, it's simple. It's, it's in your notes. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And the most rational, plausible, credible explanation for that cause that brought the universe into existence is God acting as creator. Second area, the infinite complexity and the fine-tuning of the universe for life. God uh, cued us into this. We find that science confirms what we know from Scripture again and again. God says in, in uh, Psalm, or, excuse me, Isaiah 45, 18, For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty. Get this. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I guess so. God tells us that he, uh, he deliberately created the earth so that we could inhabit it. You see, the materialists would uh, contend that the universe evolved to support life by random chance, but that would requ require that order proceed from chaos. And we know that that doesn't happen. That's the opposite from what happens in our world. What science reveals, in fact, is that order and complexity and the delicate balance beyond our comprehension in, involves there's a complex 
interplay of all kinds of hundreds of variables that, uh, that work together to create the opportunity for life to exist on, on this planet. Here's one example of the, the order in our universe. Uh, Johannes, Johannes Kepler, uh, 1571 to 1630, was a mathematician and astronomer. He discovered that planets orbit uh, around um, the sun in a precise mathematical formula. Now, now tell me, honestly now, how many of you knew before today that the planets revolve in a precise mathematical formula? How many of you really knew that? Okay. Well, I didn't know that before recently. And, uh, you know, last, last, uh, last service, several, and I noticed that they were all engineers that, uh, that, knew, that knew that. But congratulations if you did. My seventh grade science teacher is pretty excited right now in heaven because Post didn't, didn't get it in seventh grade, but he's finally talking about Kepler now. <laughs> Johannes Kepler says this, his third law of planetary motion, the square of the time of a planet's revolution is proportional to the cube of its mean distance from the sun. I'll let you guys work out the math on your own this afternoon. But Kepler was a Christian, as were many of the scientists of his day. Boyle and Isaac Newton, Copernicus, Galileo. All the early scientists were Christians. Some were also theologians uh, until, until Darwin. But he was a Christian who believed that God had led him to these mathematical mysteries so that God could be glorified in, in the universe. And in a prayer at the end of his book, The Harmony of the World, he asked God to... <clears throat> to graciously to cause that these demonstrations may lead to thy glory and to the salvation of souls. And so they have, Johannes, so they have. <clears throat> well, the universe is intricately calibrated and balanced, fine-tuned to support life. Let me give you some examples that will blow your mind. Gravity, for example, is fine-tuned to one part, get this, one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion parts. And if it were any different, life as we know it could not exist. Here's another one. The so-called weak force, one of the four fundamental forces of nature operating within the nucleus of an atom, is so finely tuned that a change in its value by even one part out of 10 to 100th power would have prohibited a life-permitting universe. In other words, matter as we know it would not be able to exist. A change in the value of the cosmological constant which drives the acceleration of the universe's expansion by at least one, by as little as one part in 10 to 120th power would have rendered the universe life-prohibiting. It would have flown apart or it would have come in and crushed itself. The probability that the low... We're talking thermodynamics now. The, property, the probability that the low entropy state in which the universe began could exist by random chance alone is on the order of one chance out of, out of 10 to the 10th to the 123rd power. In other words, no chance. <laughs> one, of the, one of the books I read, uh, somebody had commented on, on the movie Dumb and Dumber, Jim Carrey in the movie Dumb and Dumber, I would have said at this point, so you mean there's still a chance? <laughs> no, Jim, not really. Here's a little perspective in layman's terms for... Uh, from William Lane Craig, he says, uh, get this, the, the fine-tuning here is beyond comprehension. Having an accuracy of even one part out of 10 to the 60th power is like firing a bullet toward the other side of the observable universe 20 billion light-years away and nailing a one-inch target. In other words, it couldn't have happened by random chance. The British astronomer and, and atheist, by the way, Fred Hoyle, whose atheism was shaken by evidence of design, uh, says this, some super-calculating intellect, he doesn't know it, but he's talking about God, some super-calculating intellect must have designed the properties of the carbon atom, otherwise the chance of my finding such an atom through the blind forces of nature would be utterly minuscule. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed... What is it with these guys? There always have to be monkeys in the... In the, in the conversation. The super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. There are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to be so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. 
Well, what are the implications of the fine-tuning and the order and complexity of the universe for those we interact with in our world? Well, first of all, that the order, the complexity, and the fine-tuning of the universe implies, again, design. It implies design. And that evidence of design implies what? A designer, right? And that the most probable explanation for the design of the universe in the scientific arena, in the faith arena, is that God is the designer of the universe. He's the one that put that all in place. One last example, and we'll bring it down to our, our human bodies and the way that we're knit together, as, as God says. Here's what God says about the way we are made as human beings. David uh, speaks for God here. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Indeed. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a Hebrew euphemism for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God knows the beginning and the end for each one of us. Now, how does that knitting process take place? Well, on April 14, 2003, uh, science again confirms Scripture. President Clinton announced the completion of the Human Genome Project, led by Dr. Francis Collins. The purpose was mapping the structure of human DNA. Uh, let me tell you what your DNA looks like. There are 3.1 billion characters in, in in your DNA and in mine, in every cell that you have in, in your body. 3.1 billion characters arranged in a precise sequence of four-digit cryptographic codes. Bill Gates says uh, DNA is like a computer program, but far more advanced than we've ever created. Yeah, no kidding, Bill. I can't even get Windows 8 to work. A live reading of those 3.1 billion characters at three letters per second, day and night, would take 31 years. That's when he, what's in each of your cells. If you printed out that, that genetic code, that computer code that's in each one of your cells, if you printed that out, it would create on 8.5 by 11 paper, standard size font, it would create a tower as tall as the Washington Monument. That's how complex we are. That's how fearfully and wonderfully, God has made us, you see. But modern biology and dominated by Darwinist view, the, the view that uh, we're teaching in our high schools, for example, it, it is uh, that uh, the appearance of design is an illusion and that uh, that DNA evolved randomly over billions of years due to undirected natural selection. Now there's a myth. Here's the probability of those DNA strands occurring randomly. Here's the reality. Mathematicians agree that any requisite number beyond 10 to the 50th power has statistically a zero probability of occurrence, and even that gives it the benefit of the doubt. Any species known to us, including the smallest single-cell bacteria, have enormously larger number of nucleotides than 100 or 1,000. In fact, each single-cell bacteria display about 3 million nucleotides, aligned in a very specific sequence, that means that there is no mathematical probability whatever for any, unknowns, for any known species to have been the product of a random occurrence. In other words, no chance. So what are the implications of DNA for our conversations with those who are not yet believers or who are searching for God? Well, the intricacy and the complexity and the function of DNA in our living cells suggests what? Design. Exactly, design. Evidence of design implies that there is a designer. And the most probable explanation for the design of DNA is that super intellect that Hoyle talked about, that the designer is, is in fact God. So where do we go from here? Well, first of all, we recognize that real science is not opposed to faith in God. In, fa in fact, it supports and confirms biblical accounts, and that the creator God of Genesis 1 is the most reasonable and credible and plausible scientific hypothesis uh, for the origin of the universe uh, that we know about. 
So pray that God will guide you as you interact with other people. And uh, on the subject of the big questions of life, uh, who is God to them? What's the meaning of life? Uh, how did we get here? How did, how did the universe come into existence? Does he have a plan for us? And be prepared to make the case from your own faith perspective as well because that's, that's powerful. Uh, some people you'll be able to interact with on, on the basis of the information we've talked about today. Others uh, will respond most favorably to the, your experience with God in your own life. And that'll be the most powerful testimony that you have. But either way, use uh, the, these facts and the facts in the brochure that I've, I've given you today. There are more in back if, if you want to take some with you. But, but use those to fire a ferret round of truth in, in, into the lives of those who, who are under the delusion of uh, some of the concepts we talked about today. And then, and then pray. Pray in advance. Pray up front because it's the Holy Spirit that draws people to faith. It's not, a, it's not an argument. We can't convince somebody. You can't argue somebody into the kingdom. But you can pray and then you can present truth and, and the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest. The outcome depends on the Holy Spirit. And so we have to ask God to weigh in. It's not a do-it-yourself project. If there are some of you that are interested in more, uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer has a great uh, video-based series if, if you want, for example, to watch it with your kids. Uh, he has a great video-based uh, series on uh, Right Now Media. And uh, you may recall that that's the free media service that's available to everybody here via the Internet. If you need to know how to connect to that, uh, contact me or contact Ray at the church here. And uh, it comes with a great workbook like this. But it really presents the other side of the story and it, God has, has a, uh, the most plausible hypothesis for the origin of the universe. Well, let's pray together, shall we? Father, you said that uh, we sometimes think that uh, we think that if you would just explain yourself to us, we could understand. But we know that your ways are above our ways, uh, higher than the the heaven is above the earth, the scripture says. And, and so we know we can't understand. But every little corner of creation that we see, we see your handiwork and we are just in awe of who you are and, and the fact that, uh, uh, that you came back for us, that uh, you spoke the world into existence and when it was marred by sin, you just didn't speak it out of existence. You didn't abandon us, but you put together a rescue plan for us. And, and we thank you, Lord, that... Uh, that you loved us enough to save us. We thank you for the great gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would empower us and, and equip us as we engage with the people that you bring into our network of relationships, that you'd empower us to fire those ferret rounds of truth into their lives and change the whole trajectory of their lives for eternity. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.